This episode of AI Meets World is brought to you by Microsoft, making artificial intelligence accessible globally. Keep listening to hear how Microsoft is designing trusted AI innovations that extend and empower human capabilities around the world. Okay, Navneet, I want you to picture this. Vast, unimaginably bleak darkness. As morning dawns, a swirling haze, illuminated by what little light is allowed through the destroyed atmosphere, reveals piles of debris, remnants of human civilization. A lone robot strides into frame, crushing everything in its path. Okay, go. What movie am I talking about? Hmm, I know this one. I think you're talking about Terminator 2, right? Very good guess, but nope. I am actually talking about the opening of WALL-E. It's a classic Pixar movie which follows the adventures of this adorable little robot, and it's the only life form left on Earth who was programmed to crush and stack garbage centuries after humans abandoned the planet. Now, in both films, the environment is a mess. In both, humans are fighting for Earth, and the movie's got one thing right— that battle is life or death. And like the end of Wally, when humans work with robots to take action for the planet, AI can be a force for good. This week, we're talking about AI and the environment, and how AI is helping us navigate and provide solutions to difficult topics like reducing a carbon footprint, climate change, and the fine art of penguin population tracking. I'm Navneet Alang. And I'm Becky Shrimpton. And this is AI Meets World, a new podcast from Microsoft and the Globe Content Studio. Last October, the UN's panel on climate change dropped a bombshell. We have 12 years to prevent catastrophic change due to a warming planet. Jeez. That's just one warning among many, some of which say parts of the world will be actually uninhabitable by the end of the century. Understandably, the environment is on people's minds, from how to combat climate change, to plastics in the sea and our drinking water, to air quality the entire world over. You know, stuff that affects everybody. Right. I've always thought of technology and the environment as two opposing ends on a spectrum. You know those images that we see of a world that is polluted and warming too fast? It's always technology that seems to be the cause of those problems. But what if instead of less technology, we actually need more of it? Good question. Whether we can innovate our way to a better environment is a topic of hot debate. But artificial intelligence may be one of the ways in which tech becomes actually greener and cleaner. Okay, that's really exciting for me, Navneet. You talked about images. You know, I think about that turtle with the drinking straws. And I think they really help drive the point home about how pressing the crisis really is. It's an issue that's really hard to ignore, even by Hollywood. So a lot of movies coming out about technology now are addressing what a future would look like if we were to embrace the good and sustainable technology. Things like ensuring our tech is powered by solar energy, like in Transcendence from 2014. Although it's probably easier to imagine the uploaded consciousness of Johnny Depp powered by the sun when you live in Southern California. It's not so easy if you're in Vancouver in the middle of January. But while we can do all the dreaming and speculating we want on the big screen, I'm curious about the real on-the-ground work that's being done. You know, the real solutions to the real images we see on our small screens and social media feeds every day. Well, you will be happy to know that around the world right now, scientists are working to develop clean tech alternatives to clean up our greenhouse gas emissions, to learn more about climate change, or to even build new alternative energy. That does make me happy. So Canada's Ministry of Natural Resources recently granted $8 million to a team of UBC researchers led by Curtis Berlinguet and Jason Hine, we're using AI to build the world's first self-driving robot laboratory. What? 
So they named their robot Ada after Ada Lovelace. Oh, yeah, they did. (laughs) Do people know who that is? Well, they should, because she's remembered as the first computer programmer. She worked on Charles Babbage's analytic engine over 180 years ago, way before computers. Of course she did. So Ada is actually an acronym. It means Autonomous Discovery Accelerator, because that's what it does. It speeds up the discovery of new clean tech materials. And with, you know, climate change looming. Oh, you know, little things like that. Yeah, time is of the essence. We chatted with one of Project Data's co-leads, Curtis Berlinget, about this moment in cleantech. And so we currently are at the leading edge of being able to do this, but there's still a lot of technical hurdles ahead of us. And if we were to continue to operate in the business-as-usual sense of science, it would take us decades to get to where we need to be. And we don't have that kind of time anymore. And so this is why we're designing Ada to help us get to that technology solution faster than would ever be possible with the conventional way of problem solving. And Ada is the first of its kind, which is really exciting. What separates our robot from these other automated tools is that the robot actually will perform the experiments, process the data from those experiments, and then make the decision on what the next experiment will be. And so the robot is not going to simply go out and make millions of different samples, it's actually going to go through and strategically design which samples it's going to make. So this reminds me a bit of the character David, who's played by Michael Fassbender in the movie Prometheus from 2012. And he's an android who's sent into the universe by the Wayland Corporation as part of a spaceship crew. His mission is to collect samples and perform a series of experiments on them. And he's going to just keep doing more and more experiments with those findings, and he's going to have innovations until he reaches his goal, which, uh, spoiler alert, is to discover the secret of human creation and potential immortality. And the fact that he eventually creates xenomorphs is irrelevant, but uh, is it kind of like that? Uh, Well, let's not get carried away. Curtis and his team have currently tasked Ada with developing a more efficient and advanced solar cell, the device that converts light into electricity, which gives us solar power. When we were visiting, Ada was at work on the conducting layer, a piece of the solar cell that has to both absorb light and conduct electricity. Huh. Right now for these advanced solar cells, it's really just a a hodgepodge in the literature of what kind of conducting layer actually works really effectively. And success on this front will lead to solar cell technologies that can operate in urban centers that don't get direct sunlight, and urban centers that have a lot of pollution where conventional silicon devices simply don't work very effectively. And so if we really want to deploy solar on the terawatt scale, these types of technologies have to be part of that solution. So what you're saying is, is that people who live in Vancouver could be able to access the same solar resources as the people who are trying to preserve Johnny Depp's consciousness in California. Kind of, yeah. So the thing with these new materials is that you could be sourcing solar power for cooler seasons or places that are cloudy, for example, Vancouver, which is where Curtis and his team are working. Okay, so what does Ada look like? Does it have the chiseled jawline of Michael Fassbender doing his best (laughs) impression of David Bowie as an android? Uh, No, no, not exactly. Ah. So Ada's actually a robotic arm inside a clear box, so not quite like Michael Fassbender. But you can actually see it doing the experiments. Yeah, yeah, you can actually see it. So Curtis Berlinger invited us into his lab at UBC to see Ada at work. We got to watch as Ada conducted a simple one-variable experiment, figuring out the best ratio of light and dark materials for a coating for a solar cell. Not too much dark material so that light can't get in, and not too little so it's not conductive. So Ada is tasked with finding an optimum trade-off between those two properties. And this is all done without any human intervention. Yeah, Ada can actually grab pipettes. 
Combine exact amounts of the light and dark solutions, place that on the slide, take the slide over to the spinning mechanism that spreads the solution out on a film, and then finally it will test the slide for conductivity and light transmission. Ada actually even cleans up after itself. And so above that, even conducting the tests, Ada can decide what experiment to do next. Yeah, so this is one of those questions that might take a human scientist thousands of repetitive experiments to solve. Curtis says in a lot of labs, these tasks are delegated to those unfortunate grad students or younger scientists who are learning what data to take note of and which experiment to try next. So it's not intuitive for them yet. We're not at the point where we can send aid out into the universe to gather samples phase. No, unfortunately not. But we are at a point where these young scientists might conduct experiment A, experiment B, experiment C, and so on, over and over again until the ratio is just right. But Ada can not only conduct those experiments precisely every single time, and unlike a grad student, work at all hours, but it can make informed decisions about what experiment to try next. Huh. Curtis actually showed us a graph explaining Ada's method. So in the beginning, it's trying ratios almost at random. Instead of experiment A, B, and C, we get experiment A, experiment X, experiment D, experiment M. But after a while, it starts to hone in. Experiment V, experiment Q, experiment S, experiment U. And just to be sure there is an even better solution out there, Ada will try something completely different, say like experiment F, and then it will go back to honing in again. Huh. So Ada is already more efficient than a human researcher? Because that freaks me out. Curtis said his lab has a plan in the works to test if that's actually true and see head-to-head who performs the task more efficiently. Oh, it's a tale as old as the Industrial Revolution. Humans versus machine. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, what about the scientists? How do they feel about Ada maybe one day taking over their job? I actually asked Curtis about this. How does it feel to build something that will someday be able to take over your job and maybe even do it better than you do? Here was Curtis's response. I'm relieved. (laughs) Yeah, so it's exciting to see the possibilities of having something that can go through and get the answers that you're looking for much, much faster than was ever made possible before. And so much of the experiments that we do in the lab are not necessarily requiring a lot of thought. It's just a matter of going through and doing the experiments and getting empirical data that you can draw from to help guide the next set of experiments. And those really mundane experiments are really what slows down progress. And the truth is humans make mistakes and that can really provide misleading results and get you pointed in in the wrong direction. And so if a robot can come in and do something that isn't really intellectually challenging, that just helps everybody move much, much faster. Because that's what we're after. We need step changes in technology advances right now. Can't be incremental anymore. Okay, so it's faster, more detail-oriented, and it doesn't have to worry about having drunk too much coffee while trying to focus, like a grad student. Precisely. And so what that does is it lets the scientists actually do the creative work of science. So what's the catch? I think the only catch is, is that Ada, right now at least, isn't fully autonomous. You still have to kind of babysit it to make sure that it's working and it's learning the way it's supposed to. You know, this is like the perfect metaphor for parenting. It's like they've got their own little android, Haley Joel Osment, the watching <laughs> go on a magical adventure directed by Spielberg to teach us all about love, science, and sustainability. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of like that. It's growing up, it's learning the data, and it's improving itself. One of Curtis's team members said that he could hear how Ada was doing based on actually the sounds that it's making, almost like, that's a hungry cry, or that's an angry cry. Curtis said the same thing. Yeah, Ada's our baby right now. 
<laughs> She's growing up before her eyes. It's a proud moment. <laughs> so it's, it's going to be interesting to see the moment that Ada actually flies the coop and becomes fully autonomous. And we'll leave Curtis and Ada there and hope those advances keep coming. Because as Curtis said, we can't afford to be incremental anymore. You're right. And Curtis and his team are not alone in this fight. Other scientists and organizations are prioritizing environmental AI solutions as well. And we'll have more about that after the break. We're living in a time of massive change, and the signs are all around us. It's in our businesses making sense of big data, in our hospitals as new technologies help doctors diagnose and prevent illnesses, and, and even in our homes as devices streamline your day so you can focus on what matters. This is the Invisible Revolution, and it's powered by innovative technologies. Microsoft is integrating artificial intelligence across all its products and services to extend the capabilities of individuals and organizations. With a powerful, trusted platform of AI services and tools, they're transforming business and enabling innovation. They believe in an AI future that makes things better for your planet, your business, and you. Join the AI revolution with Microsoft and achieve more. So we got to hear from Curtis Berlinget and Project Ada, and the work they do is exciting and inspiring, but... I wanted to hear more about what's happening on the global stage. Are real fundamental changes taking place? To learn more about that big picture, I talked to Lucas Joppa, newly named Microsoft's chief environmental officer. It's a title that doesn't exist at most companies, but totally should. Yeah. And we talked about how he sees AI in the fight against climate change. In movies, we often think of corporations as the enemy of environmentalism. I'm picturing Fern Gully or Ghostbusters, for example. But in reality, that's not always the case. In the past year, Lucas and Microsoft have been developing a program called AI for Earth, prioritizing and supporting work being done at the intersection of AI and environmental science. Here's Lucas Joppa. I started my career inside Microsoft Research and worked at the areas of computer science, environmental science, and thinking about how Microsoft's products could uh, pitch in and really kind of have a transformative impact in this space, and put together a memo called AI for Earth, which a little over a year ago was announced by our president, Brad Smith, with a $50 million five-year commitment to deploying Microsoft's 35 years in artificial intelligence and deploying that in the four key areas of agriculture, water, biodiversity, and climate change. So, like, no big problems then? No, not at all. I mean, geez. Like, as they started to build the program, they found that there are three barriers stopping AI from becoming a more mainstream approach to environmental sustainability. Let me guess. A big one is money, right? You don't say, you know. So many environmental organizations are, surprisingly, low on resources. So they started building grants to support computing, machine learning, and data labeling initiatives. What were some of the other barriers? Okay, well, education is a big one. Lucas described how there's a big skills gap between our environmental and computer scientists. So they started investing in education, even starting a summit at Microsoft to bring people from around the world to train on their tools and technologies. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, you know, within science, environmental science and computer studies feel about as far apart as you can get. Uh, of course. And, and that kind of takes us into the third barrier, which is that most scientists don't know much about AI advances specifically. And Lucas found that so many of the experts in the field of AI work with him at Microsoft or in similar organizations. So with AI for Earth, they're leveraging their expertise as well to show how AI advances actually work and the impact they can have. And by tackling these barriers, Lucas is hoping that he can bridge these sorts of gaps between fields. Here he is again. 
I think when you step back, you realize that the world that we're living in is facing pretty much an unprecedented challenge from a human perspective. We have to somehow figure out how to mitigate and adapt to rapidly changing climates, ensure resilient water supplies, somehow sustainably feed a human population rapidly growing to 10 billion people, all while stemming this ongoing and rapid loss of biodiversity. So those things, they're all intertwined. You can't do one without the other. That reminds me of what Curtis said before, right? Like that we can't afford to be incremental anymore. And I'm sure that Lucas probably feels like a similar kind of urgency in his work as well. Oh, entirely. When we make the movie about the impact this program will have, he's going to be played by Bruce Willis. And it's clear that he and the organization are excited about these projects. But just like Curtis's work with Ada, it's like an arms race against the changing earth. And Lucas, he believes that education and collaboration are key. You know, (laughs) the gaps are big and every day they close a little bit, but then every day we invent new things in both of those domains and so new gaps open up. Ultimately, everybody needs to start by asking. If you're in the computer sciences, could my skills be useful to help solve one of the greatest challenges humanity has ever faced? If you're in the environmental sciences, you have to wake up and ask, are there technologies currently available today or that could be invented in a near-term time horizon that could scale the work that needs to be done and make it much, much more efficient and cost effective. Because we know that time is too short and resources are too thin. So with these granting programs and the efforts around education, there are some ways that he sees AI can make some actual genuine changes. Oh, yeah. And with these grants, it's about more than just money. It's about the tools. Grantees from around the world, including 15 projects from Canada, get access to Microsoft's programs and resources. And these scientists can then get working on Microsoft's AI technologies. Here's Lucas about that. The first thing that we did is we stepped back. We asked the community what the most common software tools are that they use, both in the computer science and engineering communities, as well as environmental communities. And we put all of that software, all of their common tool sets together on one virtual machine in the Microsoft Cloud in Azure called the GeoAI Virtual Machine. And so with just the click of a button, you can immediately launch an extremely powerful computer and use that to connect out into Microsoft's vast massively scalable world of artificial intelligence technologies. And so the GeoAI virtual machine really is a technology, a product offering that our grantees are finding significant use cases for. You know, it's, it's a bit depressing to say this, but it's actually sort of rare to hear someone involved in the environment in any way to sound hopeful these days. Right? And he's in a really unique position to see just exactly how technology can advance and speed up the ways we're adapting to rapidly changing climates. Here's Lucas. If technology is going to be remembered in historical terms, it's going to be because we've figured out how to deploy the architecture of the information age that we're currently operating in to solving some of the world's biggest challenges. I'm committed to making sure, and Microsoft is committed to making sure, that that is the legacy that we leave behind. I'm not here to say that technology is the answer to our problems. You know, AI is not going to save the world. People are going to save the world. People created these problems and people will get 
themselves out of it. But I am here to say that after having spent almost a decade now in the tech industry and seeing the incredible amount of innovation that's going on, that technology and particularly the broader field of artificial intelligence has an incredible amount to add to the conversation and the deployment of solutions in the environmental sustainability space. Now, I don't know about you, Navneet, but I find that speech as inspiring as anything ever written in any call to arms by any screenwriter ever. And with the AI for Earth project, we're seeing some of the boldest AI projects happening in environmental sustainability. It's clear Lucas is proud of the work his grantees are putting out. So another proud dad like Curtis. Oh, you bet. Here's Lucas. Every day I am surprised by how out there a lot of our grantees are. And I don't mean out there crazy. I mean out there at the leading edge of innovation. They are asking questions that are pushing our engineers and our machine learning experts to go down some extremely difficult paths. Our grantees are not satisfied with with the current status quo. And then, of course, I had a chat with one of the AI for Earth grantees about her project. Heather Lynch is an associate professor of ecology and evolution at Stony Brook University in New York. And her project is about the application of statistics and mathematics to conservation biology. More specifically, she is tracking penguins. Penguins? Yeah. She's developing AI that can read satellite images to estimate the population and location of penguin colonies on the Antarctic Peninsula. That is a mouthful, I know. And she's been working in this field for 14 or 15 years and told us about how much the advent of AI and machine learning has changed her work. And get this, it all began with poop. Uh, what? Or in Heather's words, guano. So about 20 years ago, a colleague of mine, Matt Schwaller from NASA, realized that we could see penguin guano, their, their excrement from satellite imagery. But it wasn't until maybe the last decade that we started getting higher and higher resolution imagery that we now have available. And we can do a better job at finding and estimating the number of penguins that may have left a guano stain of a certain size. Now, actually surveying all of Antarctica is extremely time consuming. A colleague of mine, Michelle LaRue, and I did this. We sat down and surveyed the entire coastline looking for Adelie penguins. And together, working full-time, it took us 10 months of manually looking through and annotating satellite imagery. So clearly, that strategy is not going to work in the long term. But moving forward, we have to find ways to train computers to do that kind of annotation work. And so that's where AI comes in, that we can use some of the advances from computer vision to train computers to do the very kind of classification that a human observer would. And in that time, they've gone from what Heather called guesstimating to having a much more specific idea of how many penguins are on the Antarctic Peninsula at any given time. Having to do that manually would be so tedious. And very cold, right? But not only is the AI solution saving Heather and her colleagues time and possibly their digits, it's also able to do things that human scientists can't. Here's Heather. For me personally, one of the things that really made me think about AI as the future for this work was after we had completed our initial survey of the Antarctic for penguin colonies, we had developed an algorithm, a pretty simple math model could tell us which of the pixels in each of these scenes looked like guano. And when we did our first search of the entire Antarctic coastline with this new model, we turned up all these pixels that looked like guano in areas where we hadn't 
anticipated. So I'm thinking, okay, well, you know, the model's not working and it needs a little bit more help and let's investigate what's going on. And when I looked more closely at these areas, it became clear that no, these were actually penguin colonies that nobody had known existed. And in fact, they were some of the largest penguin colonies on the planet that had completely escaped notice. And my colleague and I, when we were doing our manual survey, had simply missed them. What must have happened is that we didn't look as closely in these areas as we should have because we didn't expect any penguins in these areas. And that's something that computers don't suffer from. They, they don't suffer from their own internal biases about what they expect to find, and they don't get bored, and they have infinite patience. So it was a big win for even basic computer intelligence, and we're hoping to improve on that moving forward, not just mimic humans, but outperform them. So Heather doesn't sound like one of those people who feels really threatened by the prospect of an AI takeover. No, which is weird because you think all there would be to do on Antarctic nights is watch movies, but nope. But it's, it's kind of like how Curtis said he was relieved at the idea of Ada being able to replace the less demanding parts of his job. Yeah. And in fact, when I talked to Heather, she was just days away from going up to the Antarctic Peninsula oh, on wow. another research trip. And she said that the AI work on the satellite images so far has been incredibly helpful in making their trips more efficient. Because then they're going to know where to pinpoint their surveys and where the penguin colonies are situated so they can just go straight to it and not be wandering vast swaths of ice. But if Heather's like still going to the Antarctic, that means that you still need human scientists, right? The AI isn't actually replacing them. Exactly. And Heather said that they're a ways off from being able to only work remotely. The project Heather is doing, which is supported by the AI for Earth grant, she's hoping it'll get them further along that path. But it's not a perfect replacement, at least not right now. Here's Heather again. One of the challenges of AI is that it's very data hungry and most of the algorithms that have been most successful have required hundreds of thousands, if not millions of examples of whatever the target class is. So that's fine if what you want to do is find, you know, cats and photographs, but we don't have a million penguin colonies to train these algorithms. So the frontier, from my perspective, is figuring out ways to help constrain the computer's task. Can we help it make a better classification? We were originally doing all hand annotation and that obviously has its shortcomings. And then we have you know, full computer automation, and that itself has shortcomings, particularly if you have small training data sets. We're working towards some happy medium where, as biologists, we can say, no, we actually know something about penguins. We should be able to use that and work with the computers. So it's not necessarily one or the other, but how do we get these two kinds of knowledge working together to best serve the community? So field surveys are still essential for the smaller colonies that are difficult to find in satellite images. And satellites can help them with the larger colonies and pinpointing where the penguins are congregating. Huh. So what have Heather and her colleagues found? Like, how is the penguin tracking actually tied to the larger conversation and context of climate change? Okay, so Heather said that the question of why the penguin populations are changing isn't simple to answer. But her work allows faster and faster population tracking using AI technology, which lets scientists see how things are changing and when and where. So climate change is one of the two main suspects we have for why penguin populations have changed so dramatically over the last four or five decades. And one of the best ways we have of understanding how populations of seabirds and marine mammals will respond to climate change over the next century. The Antarctic Peninsula has warmed as fast or faster than almost anywhere else on the planet. 
So we have this little microcosm, this experiment as to how populations of animals will respond to that kind of rapid climate change. So Becky, does this sort of technology used to track penguins also work in other contexts? Oh, of course. And and Heather said it's translatable to so many other forms of wildlife biology and environmental scientists in general. It extends beyond penguins, but also seals and whales and walruses and, and polar bears. The applications are quite extensive. And I think one of the main themes of Earth observation data is just there's a lot of Earth. There's a lot of Earth to observe. And there's not a single application there that doesn't at some level require the use of machine automation. And one thing that's exciting about Heather's work is that they can actually create tangible change. She's mentioned that their goal is to have penguin tracking as up-to-date and accurate as weather forecasts. Oh, wow. Yeah. You could just have, like, penguins on your iPhone at all times. And if they can deliver that data quickly and accurately to the right people, then the policymakers that are trying to figure out what fishing allowances should be can adjust their annual limits. So Heather's work can have important and immediate effects. I'm looking forward over the next year to digging our teeth in and and figuring out ways to solve this problem because it's very time sensitive. You know, uh, climate change and fishing are not slowing down. And so we feel like we're up against the clock a little bit to find solutions to help Antarctic policymakers monitor this remote and fragile landscape. And now we need to invest time and money into this work, like right now. Here's Heather. In terms of developing these tools, we're never going to have fewer satellites up than we have now. The actual sensors themselves are only going to get better. And, you know, in the, the long run, we're at the dawn of the satellite era. And so the time invested now, I think, is well worth it because the technology itself will only get better. So there are these two parallel forces at work, right? You have this fast change in climate on the one hand, but on the other hand, there are these huge developments in AI technology. Exactly. So when we talk about climate change, we often hear a lot about the warnings, about everything that's going wrong, but we don't really hear as much about solutions, about what it is that people can actually do, which is reassuring and almost kind of a bit hopeful. Yeah, I keep thinking about, you know, WALL-E and The Terminator. And I would argue that these are both movies about hope and potential. And after hearing from Curtis about his work with Ada, Lucas's AI for Earth project and Heather's innovations in penguin tracking... It really drives home that it will be people who will solve the biggest challenges we're facing. But the AI just helps us get there faster and smarter. Yeah, you know, science fiction is full of all these fictional dystopias about the world ending, but but climate change is actually a real dystopia that we could be facing. And so we're going to need all the help that we can get. Yeah, I agree. Let's get a Wally. <laughs> Thank you to Curtis Berlinguet, Lucas Joppa, and Heather Lynch for sharing their research and brilliant ideas about AI and the environment with us. Thank you for listening to another episode of AI Meets World from Microsoft and the Globe Content Studio. I'm Navneet Lang. And I'm Becky Shrimpton. This podcast is produced by Pippa Johnstone and executive producers are Stephanie Chan and Kieran Rana. As we mentioned, this is a brand new podcast. So if you enjoyed the show, throw us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. You know, your human ones, not the bots. We're good without them. And don't forget to hit subscribe so you can follow along next week where we will be scanning your retinas and taking you inside how artificial intelligence is changing security. <laughs>